We are continuing tonight in our stewardship series. Um, last week, uh, Joe, Joe challenged us to hone our perspective on work, being that it is our most significant opportunity to bring glory to God with the allotted, allotted hours that we have each day. And then, and then the week prior, Levon, um, he exhorted us to effectively utilize our God-given talents and pursue excellence with them in order to use them in such a way as to maximize the glory of God and the joy of God's people and uh, maximize the joy and glory and praise that will redound to God's name. And tonight, we have friendship. Um, now, when I saw this topic, I, I think I was, I was struggling to find a text um, that we can base this off of. And the only New Testament instance of the word friendship, at least in the NASB, is James chapter 4, 4, which is, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And I, I thought, okay, that might be a little strong just coming out of the gate. Um, so you think friendship, hmm, friendship, you know, so I, most of us might come expecting kind of a I love you, you love me, we're a happy family type of deal. Um, but I, I mean, kind of, that, that is accurate. Um, but I, I think James 4.4 4 is also so relevant as well. So in, interestingly, um, we're, we'll actually be touching upon little of both of those themes in our text tonight. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And our text for this evening will begin in verse 12. So right after the vine and the branches section. So it will be from verse 12 to 20. I read um, in the NAS. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this time, this moment that we can... Uh, come and gather as your people and look into your word. God, I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, firm up uh, the infirmities 
God, I pray for the uh, Pastor Ray and his family uh, as they are battling sickness. And just pray for the health of the child, the baby, and Ruby and Nicholas as well. I just pray that you give them rest and strength. God, we, I just pray for your mercy upon them. Um, and even now as we look into this text, God, I, I just pray that you would uh, challenge us and, and compel us to reassess just how we might love one another better as your body here on earth. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening we will consider three characteristics of friendship. Uh, perhaps we might call it redeemed friendship. So we're going to consider three characteristics of redeemed friendship that will hopefully challenge how we relate to one another in Christ-centric community. So we're going to look at three characteristics of redeemed friendship that will hopefully challenge how we relate to one another in Christ-centric community. So these characteristics of redeemed friendship are first, redeemed friendship is marked by sacrificial love. Marked by sacrificial love. Uh, verses 12 13. Second, if you want an outline, redeemed friendship is demonstrated in our submission to Christ. So it is marked by sacrificial love and demonstrated in our submission to Christ. And thirdly, redeemed friendship is contrary to the world. It is contrary to the world. So let's start in verse 12. Uh, redeemed friendship is marked by sacrificial love. 12 to 13. But a little context before. So this was the night. Okay, this was the night before the crucifixion. All right. Jesus was here observing the Passover feast with his disciples. It was there that he had washed his disciples' feet. He's demonstrated to them how they ought to serve one another. It was the Last Supper where Jesus observed their first communion. He inaugurated the first communion in the company of his beloved friends. And at the end of this evening, they would eventually head out into the night into the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives where Jesus would face his betrayal and arrest. Yet for now, here in the upper room, Jesus has been instructing his disciples in what has come to be known as the upper room discourse. Okay? And just before our text, Jesus has been teaching them on the vine and the branches. That his disciples must abide in him and thereby bear much fruit. That they, apart from him, can do nothing. And so he comforts his disciples that he has loved them just as his father has loved them, and that they might abide in his love. He speaks all these to them so that his joy may be in them and that their joy may be made full. And so now it is in that moment, in that tenor, in that warmth of affection and communion, in that communion of friendship, where we pick up our text in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that one laid down his life for his friends. So just as the vine has shared his father's love with the branches, so the branches shall share that love with one another. Jesus is here repeating a commandment that he has imparted to his disciples just moments earlier in chapter 13, verse 34. There, he, John writes, uh, Jesus speaks, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Christ instructs his disciples to love one another just as he has loved them. And here, this text calls all of Christ's disciples tonight to love one another just as Christ has loved you. And you'll say, wow, that's a pretty high bar. Well, yeah. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. He calls us to love one another as he has loved us. And I ask, how has he loved us? Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Jesus' love for us is marked by sacrifice. Jesus' love for us is selfless and a sacrificial love, one that stoops down as a servant with a towel to wash the grimy feet of his disciples, his friends, one who lets himself be strung up on the cross while we were yet sinners. John, in his epistle, 1 John, chapter 3.16, writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And he follows it by saying, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You ought to lay down your life for your brethren. I mean, I believe we are so far removed from this in our day. It, it, it just seems so foreign. We live in an atmosphere, in a world of self-interest. Lay down my life for another We live in a world of narcissism and entitlements. It's just in the air. And how much have we inhaled and internalized so much of those toxicities of the world? Self-indulgence, self-advancement, and self-preservation. These are the names of the game. What if you were to put yourself in the seat of one of the hundreds of thousands who were martyred under the Eastern Soviet bloc during the Cold War. Would you be willing to face a firing squad for the people sitting beside you tonight? Or tortured by bayonet or the frozen gulags of Siberia, those work camps where the life expectancy was two years with a 90% fatality rate? Would you surrender the names of your brothers and sisters? Or would you conceal them and take them with you to the grave? 
Would you consider your life as dear to yourself, thinking of all that you would stand to lose in death? I mean, in our time, we're, we're reluctant to give some here the time of day. We're reluctant to even give someone a ride or even an attentive conversation, much less our life. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 1 John 3.18 Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, the believers in the early church willfully subjected themselves to affliction in order to ensure the safety of their brethren. Tertullian, an early church father, wrote, Behold how they love one another. They are ready to die for one another. And Eusebius, a historian of Rome, writes, They not only hazarded their lives, but also lost them in their zeal to preserve the lives of others. So might we be challenged to grow in our love for one another, to love more like how Christ has loved us, because redeemed friendship is marked by sacrificial love. Next, redeemed friendship is demonstrated in our submission to Christ. It is demonstrated in our submission to Christ. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So Jesus calls them friends. Friends. This is a far cry from being called slaves, as you see in verse 15. Slaves, although Paul does indicate in his epistles that we are indeed also redeemed as slaves of Christ and slaves of righteousness. And yet here, Jesus has called them friends. Friends to whom he has made known that which the Father has revealed. Friends of the second person of the Trinity. Friends of God. Where for ages man has been in hostility and at enmity against God. Yet now he can be a friend of him. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Now, according to Jewish customs, men who desire to be discipled by a rabbi would approach the rabbi. He'll come to the teacher and request to be discipled by him. So the student would go and choose his teacher. It wasn't the other way around. It's sort of like applying to college. Um, You you apply to the schools that you you want to go to. It's not like the schools come and call you up and say, will you come to our school? (laughs) Come, I will make you fishers of uh, mathematics or (laughs) engineering. But here with Jesus, instead of disciples choosing him, he goes and he chooses the twelve. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
And he chose them not only to become his disciples, not only to become his pupils and his followers, but he brought, he brought them into sharing his life with them as friends. Not only so, but he ultimately brings them in to give his very life for them as his friends. To be counted a friend is significantly more meaningful than just a disciple. This is an incredible honor. I mean, let's look a little closer at this title of friends, okay? A little bit of historical context. In the day of Roman emperors and kings of the Middle East, the title friend of the king came with great honor. William Barclay writes this, In the imperial courts of Rome, there was a very select group called the Friends of the King, or the Friends of the Emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The Friends of the King were those who had the closest and the most intimate connection with him. Christian, you are a friend of the king. This is a gift beyond gifts. You are his friend. You are his companion. And the reality of this relationship is demonstrated by the nature of this relationship. Okay? Did you catch that? The reality of this relationship, that you are a friend of the king, it is demonstrated by the nature of this relationship. I'll rephrase that. The existence and the validity of this relationship is evidenced and proven by its interaction. Here, I'll just illustrate it. Hopefully that'll help clear it up and make a little more sense. So let's say I claim to be married to this girl named Laura. And I never talk to her. And I never share a meal with her. I never show her any affection. I never drive in a car with her, or in our case, a minivan. And I never help her around the house. I never, I I just, I don't have any dealings with her. I never give her any attention. But then I come and I say, oh yeah, yeah, there she is. That's that's my wife. Um, She's my lovely wife. Yet, I'd be hard-pressed to convince anyone that we are really in a marriage relationship. So in the same way, if we conduct our lives in such a way that it shows that we are insubordinate to his commands, we are, where we are not aligned to his life, then we'd be hard-pressed to convince anyone that we are truly friends of the king. The validity of our relationship to Christ is evidenced and proven by the demonstration of our obedience. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But we also understand that we're not putting the cart before the horse Right? Because you don't become friends conditionally based upon your obedience. Okay? It's not that I will obey him to gain his friendship. 
but rather your obedience is indicative of the reality of that friendship. The king is my friend, and therefore I obey him. That's the implication here. MacArthur writes, Obedience is not the means of salvation, but it is the inevitable result. It is the proof that a person has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The branches that abide in Christ, the true vine, will inevitably bear fruit. The branches that abide in Christ will bear fruit. And in verse 17, the next verse, Jesus dovetails this entire section with the same instruction he gave at the front end. This I command you, that you love one another. This I command you, that you love one another. Now we need to understand the imperative the imperatival force here. This I command you that you love one another. Here are your orders. This I command you. The Son of God, very God of very God, has commanded you. Love one another. Loving your brothers and sisters is a command. It is not a recommendation. This is not a serving suggestion like what you find on a box of panko breadcrumbs. This is not arbitrary as if something you choose to do or not based upon your own discretion, not based upon how you feel about it on a given day. Oh, today I don't feel like there's any reason I shouldn't uh, go and sell U.S. intelligence secrets to uh, North Korea and (laughs) Al-Qaeda. I mean, you wouldn't do that. At least I hope you wouldn't. Yet you may be entirely comfortable with not showing love towards certain brothers and sisters in your church. This I command you, that you love one another. It's an obligation. It's a charge. It's a responsibility. And when you are indifferent or much worse, antagonistic, when you are with zero affection towards a brother or sister, you are in fact in disobedience. It's an act of defiance and contempt against the king to withhold love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only is it defiance, not only is it disobedience, but it is contrary to our nature as children of God. John writes in 1 John 3.10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This is a distinguishing mark of the children of God. 
The sons and daughters of God carry characteristics of their heavenly father. A child might be said to have his father's eyes or his mother's ears or mouth or hair or whatnot, these physical features and physical characteristics. Our love for the brothers and sisters in our midst is a manifestation of inward reality that we are sons and daughters of God. So do you have your Heavenly Father's eyes? Do you have your Heavenly Father's heart? Do you have your Heavenly Father's compassion and sympathies? Whose child are you? And we have to understand the reality of indwelling sin that at times gets in the way of all of this. We get clicky or at times we clash. We might assume that personalities may seem incompatible. So often we use that as an excuse personalities. But I would challenge you to consider if you can claim it to be due to personalities or if it is just preferences. Because preferences are self-serving. Christian love is not self-serving, but Christian love is self-giving. Christian love is self-denying. Christian love is sacrificial. Every one of us here has a common bond in Christ for those who profess to believe him, those who have believed upon him for salvation. We are knit together in love, bound together in Jesus Christ. Now, if Jews and Greeks can have fellowship with one another, if they can break bread with one another, Jews and Greeks can pray for one another and serve one another and sing praises with one another and build one another up, then so can any of you. We understand that relationships take work and they take effort. In 1 Peter 1.22, we're called to a sincere love of the brethren and to fervently love one another from the heart. We're called to a sincere love of the brethren and to fervently love one another from the heart. So this is what we're commanded to. This is what we're called unto. So if it's a struggle in your heart... I pray that you would earnestly ask God to help you grow in your love for the brethren. Maybe it is that you have not fully tasted the sweetness of the love that Christ has for you. Maybe in doing so, it will grow in your love for him as well. You see, the love of the brethren is the trademark. It is the insignia of the children of God. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. 
as he has commanded us. So our redeemed friendship is demonstrated in our submission to Christ. So we have seen that redeemed friendship is marked by sacrificial love. It is demonstrated in our submission to Christ. And finally, redeemed friendship is contrary to the world. Redeemed friendship is contrary to the world. We pick up in verse 18, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So, all this talk about love, and then now this sudden drastic change in theme is jolting. Jesus has been taking them through a harmonious discourse on love, his love for them, his dear friends, that they might abide in his love and extend that love to one another. That love is the essence of the unity of life between the vine and the branches. As Alexander McLaren writes, a Scottish theologian, that love is the essence of the unity of life between the vine and the branches, Christ and his disciples, Christ and his people. But that unity of life between Christians and Christ has another consequence than the spread of love. It binds them to him in a sacred community, yet it also separates them from those who do not share in his life. This results in two camps, two camps of humanity. Those who love Christ and those who hate him. Those who love Christ and those who do not love Christ. Those who love Christ and those who hate him. So the love of Christ is the dividing line in the sand. The love for Christ is the line of battle that has been drawn by a world that is hostile and combative against Jesus Christ. A world system that is composed of unbelieving humanity and orchestrated by the prince of the power of the air, the devil, whose enmity and rage against the Lord and the Lord's anointed and the people of God go back to the dawn of time. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Who's Jesus speaking to here? He's speaking to his disciples, these ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. speaking to these men on the eve of his crucifixion, speaking to them whom he will send out as sheep into the midst of wolves. And he forewarns them that just as the world has hated me, so should you expect the same. They will hate you with a vicious and murderous hatred. Only with the exception of the Apostle John, all those present in the upper room, including the Lord himself, would suffer a martyr's death. 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. The hostility and the malevolence and the hatred against those who love Jesus Christ in this world is real. Just consult the list of names in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The countless faithful from all walks of life, the writers and reformers and printers and farmers and tradesmen, housewives, children, drowned, burned at the stake, drawn and quartered and hanged, missionaries in their comforts, entire families crucified in Japan, Armenian believers frozen in lakes in the thick of winter, Christians executed by ISIS, and the hundreds of Nigerian believers currently being massacred just in these last few months, gunned down, stoned, beheaded by Boko Haram and the Fulani tribe. Just consider the 10,000 believers worldwide who are martyred each year, according to the International Society for Human Rights. Just think about that. And our feelings get hurt when someone unfriends us on Facebook. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is guaranteed. It's a promise. I mean, this is definitely one of the top ten promise verses of the Bible, right next to Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you to give you a future and a hope. In Isaiah 40, you will mount up with wings like eagles. And then now here, John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Let's make t-shirts of this one. Put it on mugs and wall hangings in our house. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. For those who love Christ... For those who seek to live for Christ, they will invariably incur the contempt and the hatred of the Christ-hating world. For what? All who live, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Christian, you are on a trajectory that is contrary to the currents of the world. Fighting against the tide, against the world. Contra mundum. The flame of your love for Christ and your life's pursuit of Christ burns upon a lampstand, casting a foreign light upon the ungodliness of this generation. Your pursuit of holiness stands as an open rebuke to a world that hates God and hates his righteousness. Who suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. Your pursuing Christ stands as an open rebuke to this world. Unless, of course, that is not the case. Unless, of course, we are finding ourselves comfortable in the embrace of the world.
the world is comfortable with and supportive of unbelievers. Those who have nothing to do with and want nothing to do with the life of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Brothers and sisters, might any one of us find ourselves comfortable in the embrace of the world? Perhaps we might need to check which side we're truly on. Check which flag is flying on the mast of our ship. Alexander McLaren writes, if you want to escape the hostility, just drop your flag. Button up your coat over the badge that shows that you belong to Christ. And do the things that the people around about you do, and you will have a perfectly easy and undisturbed life. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 15:33, "Do not be deceived, for bad company corrupts good morals." And as we stated earlier, James 4:4, 4, 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm not talking about simply befriending unbelievers because that's not what James says. He's saying friendship with the world, the system of the world. For if we don't befriend unbelievers, how else would we bring the gospel to them and evangelize? What we're talking about here is the level of influence that we're allowing the world to have upon our hearts. Okay? It's the level of influence that we're allowing the world to have upon our hearts. It could be the people. It could be people in the world. It could perhaps unhealthy relationships. It could be the type of entertainment that we consume. It could be the ideals of the culture that we have adopted. It could be the secular worldviews that we have unwittingly embraced. Or worse yet, it could be the world with its lusts, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But John admonishes us in 1 John, do not love the world or the things of the world. For the world and its lusts are passing away. God has demonstrated his love for us in Christ at Calvary. Was it not enough that we yearn for another love, another embrace?
May the Lord guard our hearts and our minds, our affections in Christ Jesus. May we truly taste and see that God is good. That we yearn after him, seeing that his loving kindness, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 63, that his loving kindness is indeed better than life. Better than all that this life can offer. Better than all that this world peddles before us. And may we make our way through this world treading cautiously. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5.15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I think becoming a father has has been one of the most sobering experiences in my life. Initially, the joys of parenthood and having kids, it just it, it seemed like such a uh, that's such a blissful thing, and it is. It definitely is. Um, but so often, the thought comes into my mind of the world that, that these children will, will face in their years ahead. And it's shocking, and it's... I mean, you try, you do all you can to protect them, to shield them from... Just the, the constant barrage, the winds of ideology, philosophy, doctrine, and the, the, the twisted secular worldviews, right? It's, it, it can keep you up all night. Um, but that's one reason that we... we uh, you know, you know we, we relied upon the Lord and, and asked for, hope to have many kids that they might uh, be there for one another, uh, knowing that when mom and dad are long gone, they will have three other voices um, um, to speak truth to one another. That even if mom and dad are gone, at least the truths that we have imparted to them will remain in one another. that they would continue to grow in their love for one another as they progress through the years, facing the adversity, facing the trial, the struggle, the pain, the heartbreak, all the sufferings of life, all the anguish of life, and all the temptation. But that they would lean upon one another and upon the truths of God's word that by his grace will have been imparted to them through us. And that is my prayer for you guys as well. This next generation living in these wicked days. It is so easy for many within our ranks to be swept away. In the face of the world's temptations and in the face of the animosity and the hatred towards Christ and the animosity and hatred that the world holds towards Christ's followers. 
here, Jesus knew his disciples needed one another desperately. And he knows that you, we need one another desperately. For we as believers identify with Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. It is guaranteed, as we saw. It is promised. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The disciples should expect to follow the example of suffering. They had no right to expect better treatment from the world than Jesus himself had received. And neither should we. And so in these days of adversity, which we understand have been prescribed for us by God long ago, before the foundation of the world, in these difficult days, we need each other more than ever. So may we hold on to one another as beloved fellow saints entrusted with redeemed friendship. That we love one another with sacrificial love. That we demonstrate this friendship by submitting to Christ our Lord in obedience in whose footsteps we follow against the wiles of the devil contrary to the system in the currents of the world. And may we count it all joy to be found worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, entrusting ourselves to him who will judge justly at the end of days. Here at last, we see Christ's love, his wisdom, and his goodwill to us, to his own when he gave us this command for our good. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Let's pray. God, our hearts are so easily distracted by so many different loves Our affections are fickle. (laughs) Our hearts are factories for idols. God, I pray that you would challenge us and quicken us. May we taste the sweetness and recall the beauty of the love that you have demonstrated towards us the love of the father that through which with which you have loved us that it might overflow in our love towards one another we thank you for this privilege to share in this divine expression of the love of god so i pray that you would be glorified and honored in that and in this body Grow us in our love for one another, God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.